This entire season of Retronauts is fully funded by listeners like you thanks to Patreon. If you'd like to find out how you can help and get episodes a week in advance, head on over to patreon.com slash retronauts. Thanks and enjoy the show. This week on Retronauts. Hi, mister. Want to play with me? everybody we are back this is volume four of retronauts episode 28 uh of our new season uh i guess we're just continuing where we left off so uh, welcome back everybody and today's topic is uh gaming's greatest flops and before i go on any further by the way my name is bob mackey the host i should have said that earlier before i go on any further let's introduce who else is here today who is to my left ray barnholt ray's back see i told you for, for, right, for this podcast yeah, right? still be around cool how you doing, Ray? I'm fine, thank you. And who else is returning for Retronauts uh, Volume 4? Oh, that's me, Jeremy Parrish, sitting in the same room as everyone else. For once. Smelling everyone. It's delightful. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a record 72 degrees here in SF today, so uh, <laughs> it's going to be kind of hot and steamy. A little balmy, a little sticky. <laughs> and who else is here today? Uh, this is Brett Elston, and I'm mostly to blame for the current smell problem. Come in on, the Brett. Get together. Mm. We like Brett. We're glad he's back. He was here for the, um, I think, the fan translation episode and uh, the Friday the 13th Jaws one. And those were lots of fun. I love those episodes. I never thought we'd have so much to say about Jaws for the NES. That went on for a while. But I think there's still more to talk about. We'll return to it one day. But yes, this is our new season. You probably heard a small bumper about our Patreon campaign. And I urge you to check it out because we are now fully fan-supported. And we are now on US Gamer. I think think it's safe to say that unless something horrible happens between the time we record this (laughs) and the time that it goes up. Even if all, all of us get fired, uh, or both of us get fired, yeah. uh, I think they'll still uh, try to get some advertising on Retronauts. I'll so try to... It's probably worth mentioning that US Gamer is not actually giving us money. True. We're not being funded by US Gamer. It's just kind of like, a, oh, hey, yeah, we can cross-link. It's cool. Because you guys work here, so it makes sense. Mm. It's just a, an, a, a, a matter of pragmatism, really. Yeah, yeah. We both have audiences with similar uh, interests, I think. and uh, Probably because we've uh, <laughs> sort of maybe unwisely cultivated a retro-focused audience on uh, this gamer. Mm-hmm. I think we've been incredibly selfish by writing about things that only uh, personally entertain us, but... Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's not entirely that's true. That's what makes the site fun. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell we're having fun doing it. The Metroidvania um, at least month I, I did so. was probably a bad idea okay. in, in hindsight. <laughs> now this has turned to a confessional. Anyway, please uh, go to US Gamer and, you know, give to our Patreon. Uh, keep subscribing to Retronauts. We're back. We're going to be around for a while and we're going to be bi-weekly, correct? Or bi-monthly. They mean the same Semi, thing. Semi-monthly. Semi-monthly. Bi-weekly. Okay. Mm-hmm. They bi-weekly, mean... bi-weekly is more accurate because it's every two weeks, whereas some months it could be three if it's one of those weird True. months with five Mondays in it. That's, that's, that's a better way to put it. I know when I was writing resumes, I like there was no difference between bi-monthly and bi-weekly, so I had no idea what to put for things that I did once every two weeks. Yeah. So Rest assured, this podcast is Gregorian. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, not following... We are now chanting the Breatharian calendar, (laughs) and I'll I'll reveal more about that later after I tell you about my religious conversion. (laughs) But uh, let's go on to our topic today, which is gaming's greatest flops. And um, I think we talked a lot about systems that failed, but not nearly enough about games that failed. So this is a great chance to do that. And this is actually based on a series... And piss a lot of people off. Yeah, we're going to make you guys (laughs) so mad. We're going to just pee all over the things you like. But... um, (laughs) You know, I, I did a series of articles for US Gamer about great gaming's greatest flops, and uh, most of the material that I covered in this one is going to be covered in in our podcast, but 
uh, I think we have the addition of uh, you know more voices, so you're not just going to be hearing the same things I wrote about, and um, I'm sure we can all bring different stuff to the table. But before I continue, I wanted to find flop because some people, some of you out there, might be like, "Hey, wait a minute! That game sold. Uh, it made a profit. It's not a flop." Well, for me, flop is kind of like a spiritual or like a, I guess philosophical thing, like. Like I said, some of these games sold well, but a flop in this case in- indicates like a catastrophic production or uh, you know misgu- misguided creative figure at the head of this game, inflated egos, lack of experience, etc. Something that made the production of the game kind of more interesting than the game itself. Uh, you might disagree with that, but that's kind of what I wrote about with this uh, this series was what are the circumstances behind this game, these games that failed, and how did they end up being these huge disasters? And before I let you guys talk, I just want to I want to take over for one more second. And um, there are three signs I, I noticed in in these flops that that uh, were common between all of the flop games. So the flop games have these all these things in common. So you first have an over, overly ambitious scope, and or several sequels planned in the future. Like it's not odd for a trilogy to come into being as like EA's EA's kind of bring out this next trilogy or whatever. But like some of these games had like six uh, six chapter things. Some of these games had an 11, cha- 11 chapter thing in um, in the works. So they start with this huge scope before they can even prove themselves. So that, that's the one main important thing about what makes these games flops. Another thing is development always jumps from platform to platform. They uh, end up taking so long they have to scrap what they did and move development to a new platform, which can cost millions and millions of dollars and, and years of work, as we'll see with some of these games. And um, usually there is a prickly and or enigmatic, although those, those aren't mutually exclusive, uh, visionary who's acting as the engine for this game. So at the source of most of these games, you're going to see one controversial figure um, who is sort of like, this is their passion project, and this passion project is going to ruin lives and, and rob people years of their livelihood. <laughs> So this is going to yeah. be a very positive episode to start with. Game uh, development. For, yeah, it's just like it never it never got better for anybody. But so, yeah, like I said, please check out the um, the series on US Gamer, usgamer.net. You can just search for it. I'm sure if you search for gaming's greatest flops, it'll turn up too. But I'm really proud of these articles, and I really love the subject, which is why I'm doing it for the podcast. Um, any thoughts on flops uh, before I start here? Just are you guys clear on what the definition is? And, like, um, do you agree? Do you disagree? Anything mm-hmm. There, was I pretty concise? It did make me think. Uh, I don't know if this will come into play later in the show or not. So apologies if I'm spoiling or ruining anything. But uh, do you feel this is a very a more modern phenomenon? Like I can't really think of something that would fit the bill, like pre PS2 almost. Yeah, I think it really. All, a lot of these games are confined to one era, and that yeah. is like the late '90s, early 2000s. One because there was a lot of money to be thrown around, yep. which we'll get into. Another thing was technology was advancing so quickly that people did not know how to make games for this new hardware. They did not know how to make games that were of this bigger scope. So I think that was the major failing we'll see. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I don't think there were as many flops just because of the simple fact that games were not as expensive to make. Uh, Can you think of anything? I think that's a big part of it is that there were lots and lots of games that, you know, uh, aimed big and still fell flat before PS2, obviously, Mm -hmm. back in the 80s. But, you know, aiming big back then was pretty small potatoes compared to what we have now. We're talking like yeah. a budget of a million dollars, if that, compared to budgets of hundreds of millions. Right. And, excuse me, we're going, we're going to see games like that lose less money than games lose today. Like, oh my God, this game costs $40 million. Well, you know, look at GTA's budget or something like that, and it's well into the hundreds of millions. Or I believe that's a quarter of a billion. Quarter of a billion? Okay. And I know this was thrown around, but Destiny recently came out, and that had like a five hundred million dollar budget, including marketing. Um, I don't know what they were doing, like 
breaking diamonds with hammers, I guess, one day they were bored. It was a great commercial. Yeah. I'll go down in history. as uh, It's like, wow, they wasted a lot of money. But yeah, like, these are going to be much simpler times when you hear about how little money, uh, in retrospect, was lost. But at the time, yeah. no one no one assumed a game could lose that much money. No one assumed a game could cost that much to make. But now we're in the era of, like, oh, your game better have a three-figure budget if you're if you're a Tomb Raider, right. if you're an Uncharted, if you're a, a The Last of Us. So, yeah. It kind of seems like the, the movie equivalent always reminds me of Waterworld. Had this reputation forever of, like, oh, the biggest flop, the biggest flop, the most expensive, misdirected, whatever. But then, like, it still ended up making money in the long run. Right. So it's, like, in the grand scheme, it's not the biggest flop. But, like, in your soul, you're like, man, what a what a miss. Right. It's, it's forever yeah. attached to, you know, all the stories you've heard right. about. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. another hurricane knocked down the, the newest yeah. set they built. And now we're going to ship that over to SeaWorld or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, let's move on to our first game uh, we're talking about today, which will be Shenmue. So uh, Shenmue came from the mind of Yu Suzuki, who uh, basically was Sega's arcade game maker for, God, I don't know, 15 years, possibly longer. I mean, like, he started with things like Hang On, OutRun, um, Space Harrier. He was the innovator. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then he went on to do stuff like Virtual Fighter, the first things in 3D. Like, he, from the very beginning, was trying to approximate 3D gaming, and then he eventually did it with things like Virtual Fighter. Was he doing Virtual Racer? To Ray, or was that somebody yeah, else? Yeah. Okay, man, he did everything for, for Sega. Sure. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Sega, you know, the arcade business was dying, and um, he couldn't be as productive in the arcade business as he could, so he had a new idea for a new huge project, which would be the culmination of all of his ideas to date, I guess, because it kind of, it kind of you know, incorporates all the things he's worked on before, except, I guess, you know, floating through space, right. through checkerboard patterns or whatever. It's his great Japanese novel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that, right? Yeah. Um, so this was going to be a Virtua Fighter RPG. Um, that's what it started life as. On the Saturn. So the Saturn needed a killer app, and I guess this was going to be it. And if you look at the Saturn footage, um, it looks really impressive. And I'm sure it's on YouTube. I forget if it yeah. leaked officially or not. Um, no, it was on, was it on Shenmue what? 2. Oh, Shenmue 2. It was 2. like a okay. bonus yeah. or something. Yes. And if you, Shenmue? If you look at the the graphics on display, you're like, how did they? How did this happen? The, the Saturn can't do 3D. Like mm. it could it could barely like render polygons, and they're making this um, nearly photorealistic. You know, in retrospect, not really, but it was <laughs> Probably so close. Probably a RAM cartridge like the size of a table. Yeah, <laughs> it was like it, it does work on kerosene, yeah. so watch out for that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it started life as a Saturn game. Um, it was going to be a Virtua Fighter RPG, and um, it eventually stopped doing that because the Saturn was effectively dead didn't live very long, neither did the Dreamcast, but they didn't know that. <laughs> Not yet, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and this game would be like a new genre. So in the tradition of Japanese developers making their own genres, making their own systems, uh-huh. giving them convoluted names, this would be F-R-E-E, Full Reactive Eyes Entertainment. And that basically meant this was an open world game because we didn't know what an open world game was. They didn't know what it was either. They just knew this thing was possible now and they were going to figure it out as they went along. And that's kind of where the problems began. Um, I want to ask you guys, 
where did you did you follow Shenmue's development? Did you follow it through magazines? I mean, it was always being yeah. hyped as like this, yeah. like the next big game. Like, I mean, I, I read Next Gen magazine religiously yeah. at the time, so of course that's all they could talk about. Um, right. I remember when it was Project Berkeley. Yeah, they announced it like that. Oh right, right. Yeah, reading and I think it's through Next Gen and other magazines at the time. It just as someone who was still like. I want more games like Symphony of the Night. All these polygons, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and then when I the idea of Shinmu, it almost seemed like too big. I remember reading about it and just thinking, like, I can't even figure out how you play this. Right, like, right. Like, it wasn't in front of me to play, but, like, reading the, the articles and interviews, I was just like, so what do you do? You walk around Japan? I don't what. <laughs> it who's, have, who's the boss? Like It did have a very singular focus and a very singular audience in mind. And we'll get to that soon because that's sort of why it failed. But I had the same opinion, too, like... Um, I guess I didn't realize it until I played Grand Theft Auto 3, but, you know, the, the idea of walking into every house is kind of boring. Like, the, the I mean, that was sort of where yeah. technology had misled our brains into thinking that would be interesting. Yeah. Like, you're going to go online to buy something. You're going to walk through a virtual store. I think I brought this up on an all retronauts. You're going to, like, stand in a virtual line, like, the, like yeah. simulating boring shit was an important thing to people at this time. That's why The Sims came out. I mean, The Sims was a much better game than Shenmue, in my opinion. But we were very fixated on recreating, like, mundanity with 3D graphics. Yeah, I mean, you look at you look at Ultima Online, and, uh, like, that was really kind of a, like, go farm and go chop wood kind of simulator. There wasn't nearly as much yeah. combat in that as you would expect from an Ultima game. And, and I, I think that, that sort of, like, if we're going to be realistic and we're really going to, you know, simulate life, we need to emulate... All the parts of life, including the ones that you always forget about because they're yeah. so tedious. Yeah. What does the hero do when he's not on a quest? <laughs> How come no one in Star Trek movies ever has to go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to bring up Jack Bauer, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like, no one knew what an open world game was. I'm sure there were stabs at it that I can't think of right now, but no one had really made anything like that in 3D before. Am I missing anything? I mean, um, I feel like... The last thing, the only thing I can think of, not quite the same, is Body Harvest. Yeah, that's true. Mm, yeah. yeah, and... Uh, you know, if you want just kind of like an open world roam around sort of aimless game, there was Tale of the Sun for PlayStation. But I mean, the the world that that created was just kind of this pretty stark, empty, open field, mm-hmm. not a lot of navigation points, as opposed to Shinmu, which was trying to accurately model mm, right. a real world environment in, in <laughs> exacting detail. Right. <laughs> Tale, Tale so, of the Sun was about a lack of civilization. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just just like just creating a city you could walk through uh, was important to people at the time. Just creating like just a recreation of life was what people were looking for. And I, I remember think, you know kind of freaking out at SimCopter because you could make SimCity two thousand. Oh, I love SimCopter. Yeah, that's right. They converted them into three D, and yeah. then you could explore then. Yeah, yeah. And, and all the men you picked up uh, kissed each other right. because <laughs> that was a fun prank. <laughs> Look it up, kids. It was a weird uh, hack someone did. Yeah. Uh, so let's keep going. Um, so okay, Chenmue gets delayed a bunch because. We're going to get into why, but there's a lot of work going into things no one cares about, which is why development stretched on for so long. So Sega releases a bonus disc called What's Shenmue? And uh, that is released to people who pre-ordered the game in Japan, and it is sort of like a tongue-in-cheek. Like, Sega got really... um, they got punchy. really what's that? Punchy. Punchy. I think they got really into making fun of themselves too towards yeah, the end because the there was Sega Tasanshiro. That yeah. and uh, Sega Sega Gaga. How do you say? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Sega Gaga. Sega yeah. Gaga. Whatever. Like that was all about making fun of themselves. And so this what's Shenmue thing had a bit in it where Yo, who is a protagonist, um, he runs into uh, the the Sega head managing director's office and he's just sitting at his desk with his head in his hands, surrounded by unsold <laughs> Dreamcasts. Yeah. And you get the sense that well, like it's based on an ad campaign. Oh, really? It yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. 
I didn't know that. But I mean, like the fact that they were able to go that far, and I think they knew there was no pulling out of this. I don't think this they, they thought this game was going to save them. They were just in so far they had to finish this game and get it out. But I think that was like um, a sign that, yeah, like this this could be it for us. Like, And I feel like Shenmue was very much engineered to be their swan song, even if it wasn't that successful, uh, you know, either critically or financially for them. So... As I said before, these these horrible projects that go out of uh, all off kilter, they end up, um, you know, they start with the scope way too big. They start with the focus on world building when these worlds haven't even proved themselves to be interesting yet. So Shenmue started with 11 chapters. So Yu Suzuki sat down and was like, this is going to be 11 chapters. Chapter one is a Dreamcast game, and the next one will be a Dreamcast game. I'm not sure if he planned for this series to span future consoles. I guess guess he assumed that these games would be easier to make as long as one was finished. They could keep working on more. I don't know, Ray, what do you... I don't know, but, like, there are, like, there's more than one example of the Dreamcast game that's episodic. Yeah. So I don't know if that was really the but but the thing is you know like El Dorado's Gate is nowhere near as huge as Shenmue. I mean, like the you know those are those for some reason people were doing it the most on Dreamcast. There was that (laughs) and there was like some visual novels as well. Yeah, but I mean those those were like tiny bite sized games as opposed to Shenmue, which was the biggest thing ever. Yeah, I think Titanic of video games. Well, I think even Suzuki didn't even really know because like it was very quickly after it was released. It was like oh yeah, Shenmue Two will be these chapters. You know, more than one in one. And that was that was kind of a thing in the '90s in Japan. You had, you know, the Ogre Battle Saga, which oh God, kind yeah. of presented itself as like <laughs> this is Chapter Five yeah. of the Ogre Battle Saga. And then there was Xenogears. Xeno Saga as well. Well, Xeno Saga was later. That was okay. after Shenmue. But Xenogears, mm-hmm. um, at the very end, it's like Episode Five of, of you know the Xenogears Saga or whatever. Yeah, but you can tell because you can tell they're bullshitting there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, but when it, you look at, what I don't. I, was, I think like, in their so hearts they they weren't bullshitting. They were like, we are going to make so many of these Xenogears games. It's going to be amazing. And then you know that's what Xenosaga was was them trying to, and even refine that, it into six chapters. Yeah. Oh wait, I mean three. Yeah. 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 Why aren't we talking about that? Instead? Oh, that's right. <laughs> we can talk about it after after the main games, though. Yeah, I, that was I, the we one. Talk about in... it. We can talk about it when uh, Zeno Saga HD comes out. <laughs> that's not going to happen, is it? Is that real? <laughs> oh no, Jer- Jeremy. I mean, this can't be real, right? Um, at the at the time of this recording, there's been like talk by uh, who was it? Takahashi uh, Harada? No, Harada. I can't. Okay, Harada. Yeah, about actually remastering the Zeno Saga games in HD. But but basically, what he said was. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. It's like, we thought we impressed you with Xenoblade. Get ready to hate us all over again. Please stop signing a petition ten times apiece because that doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on. Uh, we're still talking about Shenmue. So um, <laughs> we're talking about the chapters in this game. And at least from my research that I read, uh, he planned on each game to be a chapter. So in this first chapter, nothing happens. They're establishing the story. They're establishing his quest. They're establishing where he has to go, but all this game is about is finding a boat, like finding a way, like which way did he go? He went that way. It's just a series of yeah. he went that way until you find the way he went and then take a boat there. Essentially, that, that's all this game is about. Which which is actually kind of similar to Final Fantasy VII where you're just like following Sephiroth around, except Final <laughs> Fantasy VII had a completely kick-ass bang-up opening that got everyone pulled in. If Shenmue had started with like... You know, that, it, it does the, start the whole, with that cool cinema scene of yeah. Uh, but I mean, like it's, to not, this, it's not interactive. It's like yeah. Final Fantasy VII. You know, you've got like thirty minutes of mm. cool, like wow, I'm in the middle of the game, and then it slows down and lets you kind of build up to the story. Yeah, and in Shenmue, you wake up and your mom gives you allowance, and you're like in your twenties. <laughs> like Shenmue, yeah. To this day, my Dreamcast, the VMU says I played the game for eleven minutes. Wow. And it was me waking up, opening the door. Cool. There's a Saturn in this drawer. Walk outside, pet a cat. 
every single door in the vicinity, perhaps they're out. Perhaps they're out. <laughs> I don't get it. Turned it off. I've never played it since that day. I, I had a similar... <laughs> I guess we can talk about our personal experiences and spread I was sharing. Like, I... And I know we probably have a lot of people who love this game, but I, I really don't. I mean, like, I can respect what it does. I, I had fun with it. I never finished it. But a lot of it is... Uh, not appealing to me because I think it was meant to speak to a generation of, of Japanese people who grew up at, in this time, in this era. Yeah. And the fact that they made such a high-budget game that only could basically appeal to people on this island, you know, on, on the planet. It, like, Grand Theft Auto yeah. was successful because, like, everyone has the mob or mob movies as a touchstone, even if you're not from America. But this was such a specific time yeah. in Japan that... Very few members of its audience outside of Japan were understood, but for people who were playing this, like, oh, that was 15 years ago. Like, I remember all this stuff. Actually, but, um, but depending on when this episode airs, it'll be 15 years almost exactly to the launch date. Oh, wow. wow. So we're talking... Yeah. So it was kind of like the, the Super 8 of, um, <clears throat> of video games, except mm. Japanese-focused and also not very accessible. Okay. Super 8 was that movie? Yeah, the, the like, very obvious Steven Spielberg mm. 80s homage okay. by J.J. Abrams. It's about growing up in the 80s. With, in America uh, with monsters. No, yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it, it's it's very like uh, a Steven Spielberg pastiche, but it, yeah, it really yeah. captures that like 1983 movie feel to mm. it. I like it. I need to see that actually. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. Uh, Jeremy, did you play Shenmue? No, you know the the thing is, I have never played Shenmue. The game did not. I, like I followed it. It did not resonate with me at all. But I was still fascinated by it. I bought the game. But I just never got to the point. Like you can't, you can't accuse me of causing the game's death. Okay, yeah, I yeah. helped. <laughs> I helped. I tried to make it profitable, mm-hmm. but there was just something about it. Like I just never felt motivated to try it out. And I would like to play it now because I've discovered. Oh, I like kind of aimless open world games. I mean, my 150 hours in Skyrim have nothing to do whatsoever <laughs> with the plot line. Um, and I now that I've you know been to Japan quite a few times, I could you know definitely grasp more of what's happening and the the sort of environment and culture. But in you know 1999 2000, I, I hadn't been to Japan yet. Mm. I didn't really know what an open world game was. Uh, I still was still you know kind of struggling to find what it was about Sega that I admired. So yeah, it just it was like. Um, this great game in theory that just never ever connected with me. So it'd be nice if someone did an HD remake of it and maybe tightened it up a little bit and uh, brought it to current platforms or something. It's probably never going to happen, but it would be interesting. I would I would definitely give it a try this time. Yeah, I would like to see how a modern audience would react to it. Now that I guess indie games have made this kind of non-game more palatable. Not that <coughs> I'm not going to get into that whole can of worms, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. not yeah, the like, traditional game. I think right, like I Gone think, Home. Yeah, I think Gone Home's a game, but it's not a game that you normally play. You know, but Shenmue is very much the same sort of thing as Gone Home, where it's like you're observing details in the world around you. Although Gone Home does a better job of like getting you to where you need to be instead of just meandering. Uh, Ray, did you play uh, Shenmue? Yeah, it sounds like I'm the only one that did. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, might have played it longer than Brett and Jeremy, but only a few hours. And I did buy it when it came out. I paid full price for yeah, it. No, so I you're finished. welcome, you Suzuki. I finished right. both. Uh, although originally I didn't like the first one that much. Uh, like, I didn't really get it, and the control was really awkward. So I came back to it, like, a couple years later, and then I finally finished it. And I appreciated it a bit more, and I'm not saying I love it, but I f- found, you know, more comfort in the fact that it's just another adventure game. I mm-hmm. mean, there's nothing there's nothing special about it being a free FREE or anything like that. <laughs> it's not as ambitious as everybody made it out to be. It's just a regular adventure game. Yeah. And I think once you get into that, it's like it's not as bad because you just have to find out, you know, uh, here's here's some clues. Go find the clues. Go trigger the next plot points. 
fight a boss every, I guess, 10 hours, but, you know, and, and just try and leave Japan by December yeah. <laughs> in the game. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I was not quite as hating it voraciously as some people did, and, uh, but I, I wouldn't really give it, you know, a high score either. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons it, it didn't go over well in America. It is, wait, uh, it oh. is it is it is great for making fun of. It is. It's really all good. All the things that people make fun of. And I'm going to get to that. Totally great. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest it's... things to make fun of, and I'm going to I'm going to drop all kinds of these within the episode itself, is the terrible localization. Um... Do you have a minute? No, no. Talk to me later. If I get caught loafing on the job, the monk here really gets mad. I don't want to listen to his lectures. All right. Sorry about that. Can you help me? I don't know. I... I understand. Can I ask you something? I don't know. Oh. Okay. Hello! Welcome! There aren't many places more honest than us. Thank you, but I accept no returns. Oh. Okay. And you can read a, a brief interview with this uh, about this with Jeremy Blaustein on Hardcore Gaming 101, but he essentially said that, like, normally not enough money is a problem with localization, but in this case, there was too much money. Money was just being thrown at everything, so people were not weighing their decisions very well. They were just, like, throwing money at everything. And uh, for Suzuki did not speak English, but he was in control of the English voice casting. Mm. So he wanted people who looked like their characters because he wanted them to do media events in Japan where you can meet the voice actors. And they, this happens a lot in Japan. Like, you, you'll see, like, a lot of publicity events of, like, voice actors sitting at, like, a table with their hands folded and people, like, bringing them things to sign. It's just, it just a thing for a way for people to promote things in Japan because it's a much smaller country. You can do public appearances like that, you know? Right, and all that idolatry of, you know, voice actors and things. Mm. So it all ties into that. Yeah. Uh, it is hilarious. So, because Yu Suzuki loved the English voices, you know, despite not understanding them at all, I think <laughs> sort of the same thing I think is Ko- Kojima and Metal Gear. But he loved them so much that he made Shenmue the movie, which took all the cutscenes of the game basically, and it was only in English. But he released it; it was like a limited theater release in Japan, sort of like an indie movie sort of thing. I can't, I can't believe that. And <laughs> I then, can't believe that. But if you bought Shenmue two here on Xbox, they included the DVD just in case you missed Shenmue one, so you got to watch that as well. I think so that should be a riff tracks yeah. or something. <laughs> wow. Somebody needs be. to take wow. that on. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, but it was all that was the Shenmue the movie was predicated only on Yu Suzuki just loving the English voices so much, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps how great and dramatic that was <laughs> for him. Perhaps if he, if he became fluent in English, he would realize what poor decisions he made because the main voice. I mean, all the voice acting is pretty bad. People either sound like they're on like Thorazine or they've been lobotomized <laughs> or something like that. But uh, the main character, uh, I forget who, who did his voice, but he had never acted before, and I don't think he's acted since. Mm. He was like a, a stunt guy or like a, a judo guy or something like that who could actually do the move. And I guess maybe help with motion capture and stuff like that. But he was gaming's Jake Lloyd. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like he sounds like he's coming down off of Ambien in all of, all of his scenes. <laughs> the same year, even. Yeah. Wow. Maybe it was Jake Lloyd <laughs> in, in a man suit. <laughs> but so yeah, he like sits down at the hot hang on machine. though, this is hot race. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the voice acting, like okay. Yu Suzuki wants to communicate how important this story is, how you're going to follow it through all its 12 chapters. You turn it on, the voice acting is worse than, like, a Gamera movie dub from the 60s. Like, it is bad. It is rough. <laughs> it is, like, we like Metal Gear uh, Solid, the localization for that came out a year before. We were like, whoa, games can sound really good. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still cheesy and James Bondish, but it's supposed to be. But a year later, Shenmue was like, oh, you are, like, it's like a CD-ROM game from 1992 or something. Yeah. It's just, like, you didn't know what was going on there. 
And I guess uh, before we get th- uh, final thoughts on Shenmue, uh, it only lost uh, $47 million. That was the budget, at least. I'm not sure how much of that it made back. And that does not seem like a lot in 2014. I assume it made back at least, like, half of that, probably, just based on hype alone. But yeah. Yu Suzuki didn't lose that much money for Sega, but he was still sort of, like, unofficially blacklisted, I guess. Um I'm sure it's Probably compounded a of... with everything else that Sega was going through at the time. True, true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Dreamcast itself was losing money, so it probably didn't help. I'm sure that 47 million was important to Sega, and yeah. I'm sure they put gave it to him because it did feel like this was their last hurrah. Like he's been with us forever. He's done all of our best games. Let's give him a chance to do something no one's ever done before on a console. And this was still a time when you can do something that no one had ever done before in like the AAA space. I think uh, it was much more welcoming to these weird and new ideas. In theory, but I mean, how well did Shenmue do? Exactly, exactly. But I mean, like the the chance was there until these things started losing tons of money. Um, so any final thoughts on Shenmue? Like I said, I did not enjoy it as a game. I enjoyed it as an insane concept that existed in this tiny window of time where we were just fascinated with, you know, Recreating the mundane aspects in life, yeah. like petting cats, um, <laughs> collecting toys, going through drawers, things like that. Do you think it's Shenmue's fault that AAA games are so conservative and terrified of, of new ideas now? Um, I think we all forgot about that. <laughs> I think we all forgot about Shenmue as soon as it ha- happened. I think it took another generation for us to learn that because... But, I mean, everybody compares the Yakuza games to Shenmue. That's true, and yeah. That, those are pretty ambitious, and those are going on, you know, six or seven, eight games strong now. That is true. Thanks for bringing that up, Ray, because I feel like, okay, so when Sega brought over Yakuza... Um, Six years later, they spent time on the localization. They got stars. I put that in quotes because <laughs> yes, yes. it was like Michael Madsen, um, uh-huh. Rachel Lee Cook or whatever. But they were still people that you would know. And they took time with the localization. I mean, they were not just getting people, you know, off the streets of Japan to come in and uh, read these voices, these lines out of context. They made very – they were very careful to make this palatable to an English audience. Unfortunately, it didn't work that well. The rest were just subtitled. But mm-hmm. still, they tried until they realized, like, hey, people – maybe people buying a game about Japan would want to hear Japanese. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that, that would yeah. be just a thing that could happen. So, yeah. Yeah. A game about Japan needs more to it in the way that, you know, a Yakuza drama does than, you know – kid and his adventures in mundane vengeance. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, Yakuza has continued the tradition by being much more of a game, by being more gamey. Yeah. It's like an action RPG. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed a few of them. I think you can't play all of them. You will get really bored and fatigued. Mm. But And going to many different places. Yeah, yeah. And Shinmuver would. Like, oh, it's now it's medieval Shinmu and now it's zombie Shinmu, you know? And also, <laughs> um, it has all, this, all the same wealth of options that Shinmu did. Like, you can play golf. You can play in the arcade. You can do, you can do karaoke. You can do all these things. So I feel like Yakuza is, like, the the more refined Shenmue or the more, I guess, conservatively made where they're leading you down a path. It's not just like, look at everything and try to have fun. I know? mean, that's, that's you know, just part of the hazards of innovating is that you're throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks and maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't and you kind of have to make your mistakes before other people can or, you know, you can come in and say, oh, that's what I should have done. It's just that this happened to be a $50 million mistake. Yeah. And that's, you know, at a time when, when Sega could not afford to lose that kind of money or any money. Um, it was just, it was it was the wrong time for that game, for that company. Speaking to your point earlier, like, did, did this game set some precedent of everyone not wanting to take a chance? Like, maybe not for Western mm. devs, but maybe in Japan it did. Because I think if you look at Japanese games post-2000, there does seem to be a lot of, like, someone else going to make the next big innovation crazy thing that is true like yeah. I, i'm waiting for it and i'm totally gonna refine <laughs> it when you do it you but. do it yeah right. uh this is not related to gaming but uh sakaguchi final fantasy dude uh, like right around this time i mentioned in my article he did the spirits within like mm-hmm. and that failed miserably too just right. like 
playing with technology, playing with too much money, I think maybe that did instill a fear in Japanese developers. Right. Like, these guys were like the guys to follow in our industry and now yeah. no one can talk to them anymore because they lost too much money we right. don't want to be like them so and i think you could be right you know i think also you have to look at japanese uh you know kind of modern day post-world war ii history to understand some of this too because the 80s and the early 90s were the bubble economy over there and they like people just threw money around and it didn't matter because everything was making money and mm. people just had tons and tons of disposable cash and when you look at something like shenmue or the spirits within it's very much that bubble mentality, but after the bubble had burst. Mm. And I, I think, you know, people who kind of made their names and made their fortunes in, in that very happy time were slow to adjust to the fact that uh, they, they couldn't do that anymore. And, you know, of course, because of just the, the way seniority and, and clout works over there, no one could really say, you can't do that. So <laughs> I think they had to make a couple of really expensive mistakes before the system could start to readjust to the new reality. And currently Shenmue, is on, Shenmue 3 is on permanent hiatus. I think there was an online game. Is that correct? No, that was canceled. That was canceled. Was there like a social network game? I yeah, think? there was uh, a phone game. Yeah. Phone game. So I guess you can continue, uh, continue Ryo's adventures mm -hmm. of, of... I think he shows up in racing games sometimes. True, on a forklift. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they... I mean, I feel like they're at least more willing to talk about Shenmue where in the past they might not would have they might not would have wanted to bring up Ryo they, they might, might not would have wanted to put him in a racing game things like that I think they're okay with acknowledging this now like it's been long enough but there's still a lot of pain there and uh, I think Yu Suzuki is just coming out of hiding recently mm -hmm. something like yeah, that yeah he was at GDC this year yeah cool talking about it it would be great to crowdsource a Shenmue game guys please <laughs> so life does go on Our next game was actually really easy to do research on because this happened within the past few years. It's been recorded on podcasts, reported endlessly. It is kind of hard to find old news on games because nothing in the, on the internet is preserved ever. So you're just like staring at remnants of like broken HTML, trying to pull out what's a quote, what's not a quote. But in this case, it was all there for me, and it was, this was like the easiest one to do. But this is too human for the Xbox 360. Um, probably you, the, you could probably still find that gaff thread and just <laughs> soak in it. You know what? I tried, and it was closed. I have an account, but I couldn't open it. I think the, oh. the, the, the thread was just like locked and destroyed, you know, wow. shot in the space or whatever. <laughs> so... Uh, like I said, the most thoroughly documented recent flop, uh, and this is this is from De our buddy Dennis Dyack, um, who uh, stems from Silicon Knights, former developer in Canada, makers of Legacy of Kane, uh, Eternal Darkness, um, some PC stuff before that, but uh, Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes. Uh, I guess we have to talk about that, don't we? So this Man. game, like I said, these are all like products of their time, especially this. And Two Human was announced in nineteen. 99 as a five-disc RPG, full of full-motion video, with no loading times and a completely 3D world. This is according to Sam Kennedy. What else do you guys want? Uh, right up. What's that? It's just like, what else do you want? Wait, I'll did just you, keep, did you say 1993? 1999. Oh, 99. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they promised the world with this game, like you yeah. said, Brett. Like, they, 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 they were, I guess, they were too big for their britches even back then. They had, like, one console game to their credit, and that was Legacy of Kane. But as you'll see, it would take them another 60 years to make another game. And, and I'm, not, I'm sure they were supported by Nintendo in that time. But um, mm. 
At one point, it was assumed that Two Human would release alongside uh, Eternal Darkness on the N64. So we already see some major problems here because <laughs> two <laughs> games are switching platforms. Like, they had to be just bleeding money. And I'm yeah. sure, like, being a Canadian developer, they had a lot of government support. And I think that eventually got them in trouble later, uh, getting mm-hmm. money from the government, not doing anything mm-hmm. with it. Uh, Ray, Ray seems to know a lot about this. <laughs> He's pouring over court documents as we speak. <laughs> Um, there's like a court sketch of Dennis Dyack like furrowing his brow looking like Eggman but uh, let's continue <laughs> uh, so the initial plot of Two Humans so we, I guess we can all know Two Human in its current state or its former state since all the copies were put to death um, it was a cybernetic retelling of Norse mythology which was an interesting I'm idea out. oh, phrase done <laughs> which is not quite as embarrassing as Steampunk but almost um, it, well it could be it could be depending <laughs> if on if it took off it, it would if, be if you put a top hat on someone <laughs> Just glue a gear to their forehead or something? Yeah, I think so. Um, but, okay, so this this was very much a Blade Runner-y type game. So the initial plot revolved around a, a cop in the future searching for vengeance against a cyborg who murdered his partner. So very Blade Runner-y. So I'm noticing a recurring theme in these flops, and that is vengeance. Vengeance, yes. All these mm-hmm. are th- Vengeance Actually, count two, everyone. Keep along. Hmm. Count at home. You know what? These, these all might be revenge stories. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so Two Human disappeared from 1999 to 2000. Nothing happened to it. And then at Space World 2000, it shows up on a sizzle reel um, with no details about its release. Just oh, like man, Space World. I know, right? It's I just a, got sh- chills when I know. said that word. It's like, it's a, it was assumed to be 2000. And yes, this is the Space World 2000. Uh, this, yeah. The infamous uh, internet meltdown after Toon Link was revealed. Can, yep. can we, were we ever so young, gentlemen? <laughs> no, that was 2002. Was it 2001? This, 2001. this is the one with uh, the Ganon Link. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Then I the next so. year's was the Toon Link. That was the, great. Yeah. yeah, 2000 was when people were still behind. They were like, they were for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, you lied to us. No, it's like, no, that was a different game. You lied. Mm-hmm. But then we all got used to Link looking like a Powerpuff Girl, and it was fine. I mean, I love Toon Link. So, it's great. Yeah. There's room for everything. For the it's record, a big planet. I was not again it at the beginning. I was, so I, I, was haven't, <laughs> I haven't really started my review of uh, Hyrule Warriors yet. Can you actually play as Toon Link in Hyrule Warriors? Um, I don't think so. No. I don't oh think so. Oh, my God. They missed such an opportunity there. Well, yeah. with Mario Kart, there's DLC a year after, so uh, <laughs> maybe they'll add to. I already put my money in for May. Here we go. Oh, my God. God. Better be worth it. But, yeah, so... Basically, uh, Silicon Knights kind of coasted with their relationship with Nintendo. Like, I have no idea how Dennis Dyack got this clout. I mean, mm-hmm. I know Legacy of Kane was a good game, but he must have talked big because they released one console game and suddenly they're in Nintendo's pocket. Like, yeah. they must have, I mean, he must have promised them the world too because, um, like like I said, like, he had nothing to show for it. He had, he had one PlayStation game to show for it, maybe a few PC games in the past. But nothing else. Uh, but where where in Canada is Silicon Knights based? I think is it Vancouver. Vancouver. Well, yeah. there you go. I mean, they're right next door to, to Nintendo mm. of America, so they probably were like golf and buddies Nintendo or something. <laughs> they probably yeah. drop by for like some sh- a cup of sugar. Like, hey, guys. I mean, yeah, it's probably all about just like who he knew and who he shook hands with. That could have been it. Yeah, because like all throughout writing this article, I was like, Dennis Dyack, who are you, and like, how did you get here? Like, and it was an era when in a way was. I mean, they were building a stable of Western devs, so yeah. they've been like, hey, here's a guy, and he's talking big, and yeah. I'm sure it looked really palatable to them because they were, at post N64, they were like, okay, we don't want to be the kitty people. We still want to sell Pokemon, but our consoles need to appeal to everybody. And they're still yeah. fighting that fight. Yeah. yeah. But um, all the people for that are gone. Yeah. No way now. Oh, God. <laughs> they jump ship. So uh, we all know what happened with Silicon Knights. Um, they released Eternal Darkness, which from what I remember was pretty good. I don't know. Have you guys played it, Eternal Darkness? Well, people like it as much as they like Shinmu. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Um, I, <laughs> I didn't. People. I know what it does. All I had anecdotal from a friend who, would play, who like, did all the endings and did all the different variations and was like, yeah, it's really problematic, but like, 
genuine scares, genuine good moments in there. And it came out not not around not far from the remake, the Resident Evil remake at the time. And like those were kind of he was like I can't really decide which one I was like oh, more. Wow. But that's one person. <laughs> But he's the only uh, person I've ever heard talk about Eternal Darkness. I've heard really good things about it. I heard it was a really good, like, adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft stuff. And Mm. uh, the insanity effects were cool. Uh, Unfortunately, like, every magazine was like, here's all the insanity effects. Well, like, well, thanks a lot, guys. Now they, it's like, why did you show this to the press? Yeah. It should have been a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I I never played it because the only way you can get me interested in a horror game is to make it about alien. (laughs) That's that's it. Uh, Cthulhu could be an alien. Based on no. some interpretations. Alien with oh, capital the capital A. Alien. Okay. The gotcha. Xenomorph. Get H.R. Geiger the on board. The big chap. <laughs> so they also did the Twin Snakes, which we can talk about for a minute. It was it was okay. It broke the game. It was a weird project, like, five years after Metal Gear Solid's have a remake. Like, weird. Yeah, and uh, the, the new cutscenes kind of missed the point of the story and the characters. Yeah. yeah. Brett, did you have any thoughts on uh, just Twin Snakes real quick? I mean... From all yeah, accounts, actually. it was a successful financially remake, and it, it like Dynastia got to work on a Kojima game, like an American yeah, developer or sorry, right. Canadian developer touching his baby. That just seems unprecedented, even now. Yeah, it was. He was the first Ryan Payton. <laughs> wow. I, like everyone else, I mean, I adored MGS One and the 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 prospect of playing it again, but like clearer and in maybe it was progressive scanning. I can't remember, but like just this update, it was like this is too good to pass up. But then I was like, I don't. I don't know if I'm going to buy it or not, but this this game forever has this like sweetheart like I can't let I can't say anything bad about it because it has this nostalgia factor of uh, I went to PSM to be an intern in March of 04 oh. and it was my very first like I am in a games publication like oh my god this is happening I'm from the Midwest this is a dream come true and like totally like a jersey or a guy after a football game got thrown his jersey to some kid somebody was like Oh, yeah, I'm really good friends with Kojima. This came in. Uh, oh, you're leaving? Here, here you go, kid. And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> and it was covered in sweat. And I was like, I got a free game? What? <laughs> and was like, just decided, this copy of Twin Snakes that I still have that I'm like... And then I went home and played it and was just like, man, video games. Like, <laughs> this industry is amazing. And since joining the press and leaving it, you've just been throwing out free games by the garbage bag. Oh, God, load. Yes. Like, get like, these free games out of here. I head, don't want them. Head, uh, head to a Goodwill in San Francisco, and it is loaded. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah so, I really blew um, up the mic there. I'm sorry. That, so I, I played it, and after about an hour of playing it, decided that I think the better high-resolution Metal Gear experience was Metal Gear Solid for Bleemcast. Mm. Ooh, Bleemcast. That could be another flaw. I, I enjoyed that a lot more than I enjoyed uh, Twin Snakes. I don't know. I don't want to ask how they did the controls on the Dreamcast controller. It seems complicated. I mean, it, it wasn't It wasn't that tough because it's not like Metal Gear Solid 1 was dual stick or anything like that. No, it but was, you used all four of the yeah, shoulder I think, buttons. Yeah, I think they... Um, Mapped it to the D-pad or something. Okay. I can't remember exactly what. I'll take your word for it. So what it happened worked. after this little partnership with Nintendo? Well, they jump ship again. Like Dennis Dyack's like the friggin' music man or something. Just going from town to town swindling people. <laughs> and uh, Really put Ogdenville on the map. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. You made so, the reference before I could. <laughs> you guys, Simpsons. We're having a Simpsons off in here. So it slipped past. Okay, so what happens at Microsoft's um, X05 conference? I think it's called X05. Uh, essentially, they're like, here's all of our new developers for the 360. Like, here's all, all of our buddies. And and strangely enough, that's also when they announced the Halo movie, which never happened. Mm. Um, the Peter Jackson still, Halo movie. They're still working on a Halo TV <laughs> series, okay? So the Listen, spirit lives on. It better be as good as the fiction in Destiny, right? Tuning in. That was a joke. <laughs> Man, I just saw that opening today, and I was like, <laughs> okay. It gets better. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's, not, just, it's not like bullying. It gets worse. It's just like, I don't know. I don't need a reason to jump around and shoot people in a video game. Like, yeah. you could just be like, push start, pick your character, go. Like, in the ancient times. Damn, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. 
Uh, uh, so what happened? Okay, so uh, long story short, Microsoft's like, we have two human now. We have the two humans. And uh, it was going to be out for uh, Holiday 06, but uh, apparently... Bob, it's T-O-O, not T-W-O. Oh, damn it. Okay. I'm thinking of two worlds. Is that a open world game or like a really yes. pretty... Okay, got it. Okay. Someone so, did a... This guy brought this back. Some friend at the time made their gamer tag. They bought a 360 and their gamer tag was too human, too furious. <laughs> I was very proud of I that. like it. I like mm-hmm. it. So what happens? Um... It misses its release date. Not a big surprise. But Dyak is like, it's Unreal Engine's fault, guys. They they promised a complete engine, and it doesn't work the way we want it to. So we're going to sue them and tar them and feather them all through the press. And that's what happened. Um, he got really mad about, at Epic through the press, so he claimed to have built his own proprietary engine for the game. That That's not entirely true. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but <laughs> be- between the initial delay and the actual release, that's when Dyak went into, like, rage mode with the press. He was on podcasts. He wouldn't shut up. He became like public enemy number one for gamers. Um, and this all culminated in something called the owned by Dennis Dyack thread on NeoGAF, which is a which was a gaming web forum. And essentially he's like, hey guys, if you don't like my game, <laughs> tell me. And yeah. if it comes out and people like it, your your avatar will be branded forever with by owned by Dennis Dyack. But I guess this got out of control. People were making fun of him. Um, and really? he, he became really incensed about the fact that he was being criticized on the internet. And it seems weird in this modern era of like female writers and developers basically being threatened away from business by you know jerks on the internet. He was upset about like people photoshopping him and things like that. It was a much simpler time, I think, you know, in terms of internet abuse. Um, well, he absolutely brought it upon himself. He did. He did. Yeah, I mean, not, not the victim blame, but he was like a millionaire game developer. With, the difference between then and now was gamers punching up. Yeah, true, true. They were they were punching in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Towards exactly. Dennis Dyack's head. Um, but Yeah, so like Dennis Dyack had a big uh, problem with, uh, you know, the coverage of games, especially previews, because people weren't liking Too Human at the time. What do you know? So, uh he got on this big jag about like how previews are basically just yeah, and I think he told um, <laughs> one up Mark McDonald that he shouldn't have his job or something like that. Yeah. Like really, just aggressive and awful. Yes. That is not the way to sell your game. That's been in the works. Thankfully, for nine Retronauts years. was one of the one up podcasts who did not incur any of that. <laughs> Thank God, because we only talk about old stuff. Yeah, we could have talked. We could have cast a shade on Legacy of Kane, but I think we all like it. Yeah. Uh, I do want to read one of his um, his quotes that he said about NeoGAF and other forums. He says, uh, "This is Dennis Dyack, probably like 2007 or so." He's like, NeoGAF and other forums like this that don't have good management and are not only hurting society and hurting the video game industry, they're in decline, and they need to reform quickly before people stop listening to them. And that kind of feels like a modern, okay criticism of, like, Reddit and 4chan today, but I think NeoGAF is not as bad as he thought it was. That's, uh, it's, I mean, it's been it, tidied up a lot, I feel actually. like, like I said, simpler times, and, yeah, like, talking about the recent, I won't go into specifics, but lots of horrible things have been happening recently. I think NeoGAF has been, like, pro the good people for the most part. Like, I don't see any stinkers on that yeah, side. Yeah, generally. So, unfortunately, that sounds exactly like someone who was banned from NeoGAF. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For having to stick up his ass, yeah, trying to think that he's the best person in the world. Yeah, he seemed to have a, just a bit of an ego. So yeah. we're going to wrap up Two Human soon. So guys, uh, don't worry, we're going to move on. And so a little over nine years after its announcement, uh, Two Human is released, and everyone's just kind of like, "What? What? Yeah. Is this, this is it?" I was on the like, EGM review. Oh, you were. What'd yeah. you give it? Right? D. D. <laughs> nice. You burned that bridge. Yeah. D so, for Dyak. Yeah, I played all the way through it. I also did a small guide for it because I was still at my cheats then. So mm. I've played through all oh, wow. of Two Human. Yeah. Well, Ray, I haven't played any of it. Can you can you talk about the, the quality of Two Human? 
uh, low. Low? Okay. <laughs> uh, it, the thing that always got me was this death sequence because every time you die, you have to sit through a 30-second sequence of like this angel taking taking your character up and just bringing him to heaven and then s- somehow uh, resurrecting him. And you have to do that. that I mean, that was, that was one whole disc of the FMV originally. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, please so, enter disc gotta, two. Gotta and <laughs> you just sit there and go, well, is is this like a punishment or was this like intended to be there because it's supposed to be, I don't know, Dennis Dyack's cinematic vision or something, but you have to sit through it every single time. And plus the game's like, you know. How dare you try to censor him, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I think they're really just trying to discourage you from dying. Like the the incentives for not dying are really high. Yeah, but then I think, well, you know, based on who Dennis Dyack is and everybody and all the other crap that was, had to have been happening at that studio at the time, it's like, Maybe it was digital. <laughs> like yeah. Maybe they thought it was good in some way. Um, but, yeah, otherwise it's just a very brief, crappy Diablo-ish sort of game. And, um, yeah. I have no experience with it because it looked kind of dumb. Thankfully, Giancarlo did the main review for EGM and then the 1UP review and then got all the crap for that. So. Yeah, I did read that review. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it made it seem like uh, but yeah. it was kind of a pointless Everything game. Everything you hear about it is true. So this this had a bad end for uh, Silicon Knights. They would go on to make a few other games. I think that X-Men game that everyone hated. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> right, you probably know the name of it. You're a comic fan. It's Mutant Academy, Mutant right? Academy, I think Is so. It? Yeah. Um, was it Mutant Academy or was it Legends? I think it was Legends. Was it Legends of the Fall? Uh, That's so, it. Yeah, the Brad Pitt yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. So, Which one's Mutant Academy? Was that a fighting game? Uh, yes, I, don't know. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. The important thing is they made a bad X Men game. It was the Terras Cassi of X Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked about uh, Silicon Knights getting mad at Epic for Unreal Engine. Well, Epic was like, you know what? We're going to sue you. So there was a countersuit, uh, and Silicon Knights was found guilty of breaching their contract, uh, misappropriating trade secrets, and infringing on Epic's copyrights. Apparently, uh, based on court documents that I read and like you know summations of the trial, uh, Silicon Knights was using parts of the Unreal Engine in their own engine without paying for it. They're like, oh, we like how you did this lighting thing. We're just going to steal it, yoink. And then they had to basically destroy copies of all their games built with Unreal 3, including Two Humans. So this game was literally, like, sacrificed, put to death. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm sure if a cop walked into your house and saw a copy, they, they would legally be allowed to discharge their firearm into it. <laughs> From a 30-second death sequence. Yeah. <laughs> and then you will watch a five-minute video of an angel yeah. taking it up to heaven. Um, uh, one of the great defenses of Two Human was that it's great in co-op, but almost everything is, <laughs> it, 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 no matter how bad it is, because you, you you just sit there, you know, with a friend and yeah, laugh that. at it. So that was always really weak to me. It's like, yeah, okay, what is not bad? <laughs> and for all the money they spent on it, and I can't find a real number on this, and I'm sure it, you can't find a number anywhere, but it was between 60 to 100 million, and, and that's like... Yeah, which version? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, like if this accounts for all of development or what, but it just, it does seem kind of like, that, that's not that much. But uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're approaching modern level game budgets here, modern level AAA game budgets. So that's how much they lost. And then Silicon Knights is no more. Dennis Dyack, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, anybody seen him begging for change downtown? <laughs> I don't know. You know not they, lately. Yeah. They tried to make that uh, re-envisioned internal darkness-ish oh, game. Right. And, and then he made a lot of humiliating YouTube videos. It's like, let me set the record straight. And it was like an hour-long crazy yeah. vlog of him like denying things. Like, right. whoa, whoa. Made a bad Kickstarter, got persecuted for it, tried to defend himself badly much on, as he did on NeoGAF, then tried to make like a private sort of crowdfunding thing, which mm. was also really scummy. And, yeah. The Diac cycle begins again. Yeah.
let's move on to our next game, and that is uh, Daikatana 1999 for the PC. Probably synonymous with Chuckles, that, that title. I mean, like, no yes. one takes Daikatana seriously, and I'll tell you why. Um, John Romero, big guy, pretty hair. <laughs> He's a handsome man. Got it? Die guy. What's that? Die guy. Die guy. Because <laughs> Daikatana means He's big. the Daikatana guy. Um, die means big. That's true. It means big sword or big katana. Mm-hmm. And um, rail means rail. That's right. <laughs> it's that simple. But who is John Romero? Um, Jeremy, can you tell us who John Romero is just for fun? Um, he's that guy who made me his bitch. Whoa. That's true. Oh, but what did, he do be- what did he do before that? He was one of the lead designers on Doom, which, uh, you know, makes him a pretty important guy in the annals of video game history. Yeah. And uh, Quake as well, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was with id, so he also worked on Wolfenstein. I mean, he he had a lot to do. He he was more kind of the aesthetics and level design, um, whereas, you know, John Carmack was more the technology. American McGee was, you know, level design predominantly. He was also a leprechaun, I think. Mm, <laughs> yes, I believe so, yeah. Um, so anyway, he, he was kind of the guy behind the rock and roll uh, album cover, heavy metal album cover aesthetic of Doom. That's um, true. And also, he's like the secret final boss of Doom Two. Yeah, his head on a on a spike or something, yeah, or like yeah. his a face texture or something. Yeah. But yeah, but uh, so John Romero starts Ion Storm. Um, everyone's excited because he's he's the Doom guy. He's like the face of Doom because he's the prettiest guy on it. So uh, Tom Hall, who is their marketing campaigner, marketing PR guy for Ion Storm, essentially runs an article. I don't know where it ran. I think I saw it. I'm sure it ran in a lot of magazines, and it said. John Romero is about to make you his bitch. Oh, it wasn't an article; it was an ad. An ad, sorry. Yeah. I said, I, I over ad. and over again. It <laughs> was in it was in mini magazines. Yeah, I'm, I'm like I. They probably just like mass spread it everywhere. But the text was John Romero is about to make you his bitch, in huge letters, and then in smaller letters, suck it down. So, like, I, I feel like we're a lot more sensitive now. Before it was like, oh, that's in bad taste. Now it's like. This guy is going to rape your mouth. That's what yeah. this is saying. Like, this is disgusting and awful. And I think we just all rolled our eyes at the time. But now it's like if someone wrote that ad today, there would I, just be pandemonium. Man, I, like, I never got that reading out of it. I just took it as, you know, like, you know, first-person shooter trash talk. Uh, I didn't really think about the literal implications. Of I, it. I was what it was based on. It was just yeah, based on yeah. the stupid crap yeah. John Romero would Yeah, it's like, imagine. I mean... I, I I don't know. I guess I came from uh, having played a lot of you know, first-person shooters in the 90s and, you know, following the marathon games. Bungie was pretty open with their community, and so you'd see, like, a lot of their trash talk banter. It was never quite like that. Right. But the spirit was very similar, and they even kind of built that into, like, level design names and things like that. But the thing was, I mean, even distancing its, its sexual assault references, it was basically like, we don't care if you know who John Romero is. He's important. Right. Yeah. And he, you're going to bow down to him because he's, he's going to make the next big thing for you. So already, like, totally off on the wrong foot, right? Like, there's no way you can get off on a worse foot than that. I mean, this was the era of that sort of attitude, though. You could like say, you like, buy this game or I'll kill your mom. <laughs> Uh, or buy this album, we'll kill this dog, right? right. That's yeah. National Lampoon. I think magazine, yeah. Okay. So, basically, Daikatana, it hinges on the idea of the Rockstar developer because here's the thing about games. No one outside of gaming cares about games unless there's money involved, which is why, like, uh, six months ago, everyone wrote their PewDiePie article because it's like, hey, you can make money off of this. And it's just like immediately everyone writes an article, PewDiePie makes $4 million a year. So that's exactly what happened with this. It's just like, hey, this regular guy made this damn video game my kids can't stop playing, and he's a millionaire now, and his hair is great. So (laughs) we we have to write so many stories about him and his Lamborghinis and his mansions. He's a rock star. He's dating bikini models. Like, this is like... Local boy makes good. Like, any if you're a nerd, th- this th- this could be your life. Like, this is an aspirational lifestyle for nerds. 
Um, and that's essentially what was going on with John Romero. Like, everyone was feeding into his ego. Like, you are the next big thing. You are a rock star. And him and a lot of other, like, level designers at the time were, like, the the key figures of this movement. And I think Something Awful, the website that I write for sometimes, it sort of launched off of making fun of these people yeah, for the Cliff most part. Blazinski. Yeah, and, like, Level Lord. Yeah, and, yeah. They, the, the early articles at Something Awful back when no one knew what it was were very centered around that kind of culture. Yeah. And I've been talking way too much. Like, I'm not sure if I'm, I was way into PC games at the time and I knew about Daikatana. How about you guys? Were you aware of it um, sure. in any sort oh, of circle? Yeah. I mean, yeah. please talk about it, Brett. Just I mean, like you knew it was a thing? Or? Mostly knew it through the ads. I mean, knew Romero, obviously, but like never played it. Saw the N64 one in a demo kiosk once and oh, was right. like... There was an N64 version. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And it was like, oh, blah. And <laughs> that's really, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then the notoriety afterwards. That's really all I had. God, N64. Like, you thought it was ugly before. Oh, man. Well, let's pull this lever. Uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeremy. I mean, that was one of those games that was just kind of inescapable in the late 90s. Um, like, it was just in all the magazines, all the websites. I had zero interest in it. Uh, you know, I, I liked some first-person shooters, but there was nothing about that one that looked interesting. The fact that they had um, a guy who was kind of winkingly named after Shigeru Miyamoto just felt really gross and disingenuous like oh which guy was that um, the, the main hero the main hero okay. Miyamoto. ah okay yeah I mean it was it was obviously like uh, I love Miyamoto games so I'm gonna make a <laughs> reference to him in my video right. game <laughs> yeah uh, like I don't know it, it just never interested me and then the advertising didn't help uh, you know endear it to me at all um, hmm. but when the when the negativity started to roll in uh, once it actually came out it just kind of you know confirmed that oh yeah I really shouldn't pay attention to this game. Right. Uh, Ray, did you... Uh, I didn't play it, but... Uh, I never played it either, to, I mean, to I be honest. I watched a Let's Play of it. I didn't care about the advertising either, but I did track, you know, what was going on with it. And yeah. The fact that it was delayed and delayed and delayed, and then turns out, oh yeah, it was a pile of crap. It, it was this ongoing horror show in the in the press at the time, like, but what then, yeah. is going wrong now at Ion Storm? And a lot was going wrong. Yeah, but then I, I got to read Old Man Murray to take it apart. So. Oh, that's, <laughs> that was great. That was a great review. Yeah. Um, so what was Ion Storm? I didn't really go into that. That is the, the foundation of developers that was formed by John Romero, Tom Hall, and a few other people. Um, their motto was design is law. And they kind of remind me of like the image comics of the gaming industry where they had the same <laughs> attitude, the same lack of professionalism, the yeah. same like, you know, I, I guess... Same image, trouble with release dates. That too, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I think like image guys were the rock star comics guys. They were like showing up in Levi ads and things like that. And Tom McFarlane was buying baseballs. You invented X-Force? Yeah, <laughs> me and Louise Simonson and all the other people who developed these characters over the past two decades. But yes, it was me. Mm-hmm. But I... I don't want to call uh, uh, John Romero the God, Rob, I just forgot Rob, Liefeld. Rob Liefeld of uh, gaming. Liefeld, yeah. That seems too mean. Um, so yeah, they they had like this beautiful like I saw pictures of it. This gigantic, uber expensive penthouse office in the largest or one of the largest skyscrapers in Dallas. Like yeah. nobody was developing games in penthouses. I mean, after Jr. shot himself, <laughs> yeah, like they, someone someone needed to move into that. That'll space. really lower your property values. I remember reading some story about that where like they're on the top floor near the top floor and like the ceiling where they were coding or whatever was just like open to the sun or giant window or whatever so they're all just baking that's right yeah heat yeah i mean it was ostentatious but it actually interfered with development it's just like yeah yeah, we didn't really think this over we just wanted the best most expensive thing and while they were you know throwing money away uh warren specter and his team was doing deus ex which Mm. secretly was like as revolutionary as Daikatana wanted to be, mm-hmm. but it was not as like, hey guys, we're here, we're gonna kick your ass yeah. and take they're names. They're the good Iron Storm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're the Glenda of the, of the West. Iron of Storm the East, White, I guess. 
Iron Storm White. I believe uh, the good and bad witches were north and south, and the wicked witches were east and west. Okay, got it. Man. It's good to keep I your need... your orientation. It's like freeways, you know, the, the even and odd numbers. Okay, wow. Good and evil, even odd. It's all it's all based on compass wow. points. Hmm. I didn't know that. But let's move on to, uh, what is Daikatana, guys? I didn't play it. I watched a Let's Play. It's didn't a... they do a video called What's Daikatana? No. Uh, <laughs> it was John <laughs> Romero <laughs> surrounded by, like, uh, is it, is it, it was, a... like, stacks and stacks <sighs> of unsold Daikatana. <laughs> is it a Help vengeance me, story? Real. Help me, Miyamoto. Uh, I don't think so. It's about finding a giant sword. It's, like, it's all about this giant oh, sword. Oh, it's really literal. Yeah. Yeah. And, Ray, wasn't Quake about, like, a weapon called Quake or something? Or? Yeah, I think in much like the the seed of Quake, which we discussed on the Quake episode. That's uh, right. It was kind of based on like a and d campaign from like those Romero and Carmack and stuff, like the original seed of the idea. So I think, all yeah, a part of someone's character also wielded something called the Daikatana. I thought so. a Quake was a deserted Dairy Queen. Uh, is that's that a, not what the game is about? No. You might be thinking of the... The uh, alternate version of that from like Wendy's or something. Uh, okay. <laughs> the flurry. I don't know what it's well, called. Was quaking the night. So uh, this game was a time traveling, globe trotting adventure with AI companions. The AI companions didn't work very well. I, I think... mean, oh wait, wait. There was time travel involved. Yeah. See, like I always each... got this game mixed up with Anachronox. Which oh was no. another That was another Ion Storm game, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I get that mixed up with Septericore because they yes. were just all oh, that God, era. That one yeah. too. Like that... they were all these games yeah. that were kind of opaque to me because they were on PC and I didn't play on PC. Yeah. yeah all the Ion Storm side projects came out before Daikatano did, yeah. which was the first like big project that they were uh, promising. But this game had AI, AI companions before like Half-Life Episode 1 made that like tenable or like yeah. made it work. I think I like, don't... you know, some of the ambitious ideas that were going to be in Quake sort of were transplanted into Daikatana. Yeah. Tom yeah. was like, oh, let's make this sort of like an RPG and let's add multiple characters and these cool weapons and stuff. But yeah, know, it doesn't didn't go into Quake. <laughs> more tied into RPGs than his past projects. And yeah. like, it is it is laced with this embarrassing like white guy orient, sorry orientalism where all the Asian people talk like Master Splinter and they can float and have magic powers. Uh-huh. It's just the very of that era. Like oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I, Japanese stuff is so cool. I married into a Vietnamese family and that stuff is totally legit. It's just like crouching tiger all day, like wire foo. And... So it's totally like <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it, it did reek of a lot of. Have, do you guys know I've been to Japan? I've seen <laughs> real Wall Scrolls. <laughs> do you know who Shigeru Miyamoto is? Yeah. Uh, don't forget Superfly Johnson. Don't forget about him. He's one of the side characters in another one. It's like yeah. you have your stereotypical black character, stereotypical Asian character. I think the main guy's a white guy, so you got all your Neapolitan no, flavors. Yeah. Oh, no, whatever. Japanese guy? I, I don't remember. But, I mean, you know, he was no hero protagonist. Uh, oh. <laughs> yes. Is that a hero's thing? No, that's Snow Crash. Okay. Man. Neil Stevenson. <laughs> Sorry. Which came out before Daikatana, so probably there was some uh, influence there. True. Um, to wrap this up, because there's a lot going on with Daikatana, uh, Daikatana, sorry. Daikatana? Uh, Katana. Well, <laughs> it was originally Cortana. planned for release by Christmas 97. Um, the, the turmoil that went on in this studio could fill a book. It could barely fill mm-hmm. my art. I mean, could, my article was just like, listen, guys, I can't write about all of this. So I'm just going to cut to the yeah. chase. By 99, Iron Storm had either fired or accepted the rec- uh, sorry, resignations of nearly half of its approximately 85 employees. Some of these guys, the core team, went on to form the Gathering of Developers, or God. So you could ah, tell yes. there was no hubris there. And uh, based on reports at the time, Romero seemed to go MIA during the, all of these troubles. And who could blame him? I mean, like, all this money was riding on him. Um, all This huge game was riding on him. He was the guy that was, you know, the spokesperson. He was out front. He was selling it to people. But it was quickly falling apart. And Daikatana eventually released in May of 2000, only one month before Deus Ex would make its ambition look like garbage. Like, Deus Ex was just yeah. like... This is how you can do cool things with the, with the FPS. No one did that since, really, but it was just showing you a way this genre could go. Daikatana was just like, oh, this is just a mess. Yeah, I'm sure there are bright spots, but I didn't see them. 
Well, the great irony is that the Game Boy Color game is better. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. Uh, not released in America, I guess. Oh, yeah, it was. Oh, it wasn't? I mean, it, it was. was. Um, weird. I thought it was just Europe, Europe and Japan. Um, maybe, but mm, okay. I don't know. Any, so, anyway, I mean, either way, like, they licensed Daikatana to Kemco, which was even then, like, a super obscure, <laughs> on-their-way-out Japanese publisher. Yeah, now they just make cell phone And they made games. the N64 port and the Game Boy Color port. Oh. Or not even port, but uh, it's like an original sort of, like, uh, <laughs> Zelda-ish game. So... Like um, with Yu Suzuki, I think John Romero is just just getting back into game development. Like he's been he's been promising or no he's he's been floating oh, the periphery for a long time. Mobile. He he was involved with Gauntlet okay. around like two thousand five two thousand six, and then he went into the mobile market. Uh, I don't actually know what he's doing now, but I mean it's it's not like he ever went away. It's right. just. He's been various degrees of irrelevant right. over the past decade. I mean, like John Carmack, he at least would be like, I want to make a mobile game over the weekend. And then he makes like an MMO. Was that Orcs and Elves? Yeah, yeah, that was. Okay. Uh, that's uh, John Carmack. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, John Romero, like he's in the mobile space, but I think he's being more open with like, I want to be in this again. Like I want to make a game with my name on it again. I think enough time has passed. Maybe he's right. Have I, you I, forgiven me yet? I do want to see him prove himself after, I mean, like Quake and, um, and Doom and stuff like we'll that. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Definitely. I think uh, I think we're going to see similar things happen to Notch. Ooh. <laughs> Trouble yeah, on the horizon? I, I think Notch is uh, cashing out and getting out, personally. Uh, I think he's going to try and make something better that will also not be finished. <laughs> Turn out to be better. <laughs> what about Scroll? Scrolls? That's not him, really. Oh, that I was, forgot. It was just a different team. Okay, got it. So, yeah, like, um, before I wrap up, essentially, like... I think we're going to see this with the next game, too. Like, he was used to making games on a much smaller scale, a game you could make in a garage with five smelly guys, you know, and some heavy metal albums playing in the background. He was not ready for a fully 3D world. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's not really an environment for John Romero anymore. No, no. <laughs> I, but we'll, we'll see what he does next. I, I think, yeah, like, certain talents just have a time and a place. And I, I like you said, I think he, his approach and aesthetics and uh, just overall mindset were really perfect for... Uh, the early 90s for, you know, Doom and Quake, like, they were important and they really helped revolutionize the genre and push the medium forward. But um, I I think maybe there is a place for, you know, John's uh, kind of his vision, or if you want to call it that, um, with the kind of growing indie movement. Uh, You know, eventually the indie space is going to get more into, like, PS1-style games. We, we've yeah. kind of gone from NES to Super NES, and now we're going to go to the uh, the, the sort of um, low-poly 3D games. So maybe maybe this is his chance to shine again and, I think and we're kind of s- work with that space and that, that style. No, I think you're right. I think we're going to see, like, throwbacks to these 2.5D shooters that were not just faking 3D and giving you motion sickness and stuff. I think that can be revisited with our with our knowledge now. Let's move on to our last game and perhaps the most notorious game of all time. Um, it, it it was a joke, but now it's just a tragedy. It's Duke Nukem Forever. Um, it's still a joke. It, I guess it's still a joke. <laughs> but like after after hearing the details, you're like, that's sad. I don't. Yeah. This is sad. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, we all we all know about Duke Nukem 3D. It came out in '96, and it was like it was re- revelatory, revelatory. I don't know. You 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 come up with the right word for that one, but um, more, more L's, more E's, more L's, more E's. Mm-hmm. Revelatory. Okay. Yeah. I, I was in Catholic school, so I think of revelations before I think of revelations. R.L. Salvatore. Okay. <laughs> we are way off track. But we all played Duke Nukem 3D, right? I mean, at least I did because it was this ambitious FPS that was in, like, the real world sort of. It yeah. was an approximation of the real world. You were kind of jumping down the same corridors and stuff in Doom and Quake, and it was all very, very interesting but still sort of bland and working from, like, tile sets and texture sets. But in the very first level, you go to a movie theater, you go to an arcade, you go to like a, a porno a store, you go to um, a bar. I mean, you're, you're like going to real places in the real world. And the world offered a level of interactivity that you didn't see in games that day. Like yeah. you could play pool, for instance. Yeah, I read your, the, the post you made about this and it just reminded me of like sitting at a PC like before Pentiums left me behind. <laughs> uh, playing Duke 3D and just like being so into Doom already and then there was something about like sort of a wish fulfillment of like I'm in the real world and I'm messing you could still tinker with the world and like Doom your reward was like I might find a secret or I might find more ammo or a soul sphere something fantastic but this was like oh this opens a theater door or this I can actually play not really play pool so much but like things were you could touch them and it felt like right, yeah. I was there. There was so much shit to push the E key on. <laughs> yeah. It was so versatile. I mean, like, even in the first level, like, one of the puzzles involves opening the uh, curtains of the movie theater yeah. and playing the movie so you can shoot at the hole in the screen and go behind it to get a yeah. reward or whatever. I mean, like, I think the most work was put into those early levels because there's yeah. so much to do in them. But, like, I would replay them over and over again because it felt like I'm stomping through this world. It was sort of like the GTA appeal where it's like I'm in this real place acting out violent fantasies. So, a bit. so Duke 3D was kind of like the tanker level of uh, first-person shooters? The tanker level? Uh, Metal Gear Solid 2. Maybe the first – I don't think it, it let people down that much. The, the other the – other, No, everyone loved the tanker level. Oh, I'm, but, I mean, the things following it were also good, oh, okay. just not as, like, detailed or involved. There's also just technical things of – because – we were really into friends and I were making a bunch of doom levels and then like sending them back and forth and then calling each other on modems and like, Oh, check out this thing. I made my house and wadded. Let's play it. (laughs) And then going and playing Duke Nukem, it was like, wait, things can overlap and like sprites can exist on top of each other. And you actually look up and down and it was like, Mm-hmm. It's like it looked enough like Doom to play this and be like, what have they done? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it was like not quite 3D, not at all 3D, but it was still like a huge advancement. The build engine yeah. was great. And like I would take I, – I made levels in this game. This is the only game I've ever made levels in. And I, oh. I printed out like the 80-page fact and I would read it in wow. study hall and take notes yeah. and stuff. And then like <laughs> none of my levels ever worked because doing anything ambitious required a lot of programming and oh, a lot of like yeah. – um, yeah. Just hours and hours lost. And then like some of those programs were so sketchy. And, yeah, like, they make, would crash. Make, make sector, crash, the whole thing's gone. And yeah. it's like yeah, I tweaked uh, one vector once. <laughs> so when I was playing, when I was playing it the other day, I was for, out the rest of the season. <laughs> <laughs> when I was playing it the other day for research, and I was just like seeing some of the effects. Like that must have taken forever to figure out how to do that because I've tried to do things in build, and mm. they were terrible. But enough about Duke 3D. I just <laughs> want to say that despite its its um, salaciousness and its outright theft of movie taglines and other things, mm. it is still a great game. And I just played it on a live stream not too long ago for Yo's Gamer. Go to our YouTube channel if you want to see that. But a sequel. So, so should I actually try playing the game sometime? That was one that I completely passed by because I was into first-person shooters, but I was also quite a bit older than you at the That's time. That's true, yeah. So, like, to me, it just seemed sort of juvenile. I was like, yeah, I've, I've touched a real boob before. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need this. Now, um, it, is, it, is, it is quaint, the, the kind of, like, 
Right. The, the kind of male aggression mm-hmm. be powering it is very, very quaint right. and adorable. Right, kind of like how Mortal Kombat at the time was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And now you're like, oh, look at those little digitized sprays. It's, it's trying so very cute. hard, but it's still like a 13-year-old boy, mm-hmm. essentially, like, drawing in his notebook. But yeah, um, it, it never came off, at least what I remember, nothing came off as mean. Like, um, it just came off as, like... It was, it was it was very silly. Yeah, it okay. was like I was like I mean he they Maybe, straight up. I, I guess I misread that. Like I, I I kind of conflated it with Shadow Warrior at the uh, time, yeah, which yeah, seemed geez. really really gross. <laughs> that was pretty. Yeah, nice. it's different. And and blood as well. Um, but yeah, so Duke 3D was super popular. It did some great things. So a sequel was inevitable. And on uh, April 28th, 97, Duke Nukem Forever received an official announcement. Um, they wanted to bring it out by the end of 98. And, um, you know, they're like, okay, 3D is a new thing. We're going to get rid of this build engine and we're going to um, use the Quake 2 engine. So it won't take us as long to make this game because we have an engine. We don't need to make one. But that caused some problems. They didn't get the Quake 2 engine in time. So they, they faked screenshots with the Quake 1 engine and gave them to PC Gamer. It's like, here's what we think our game will look like. Let mm-hmm. people know that's what our game will look like. I that guess didn't, That didn't stop Half-Life. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Man. Um, that was not a flop, thank God. So let's see what happened next. Um, they eventually started using the Quake 2 engine, and it debuted at E3 1998. And in a pre-Half-Life world, this looked great. I mean, like, it was the same set-piece-driven um, FPS that we're kind of sick of now, but in this context where these things didn't exist. So Duke was, like, on the back of a truck shooting at things. There are all these different, like, weird, interesting levels and, and twists on the originals. So... Like, it felt like this was going to be a great game, and most people assumed it would be out, but that didn't happen. Um, so we talked about issues with people who were making smaller games not used to these larger 3D games. And that's what it happened with Duke 3D, because um, from the mid to the late 90s, like, computer technology was advancing crazy. Like, everyone was getting gateway computers sent to their houses mm-hmm. in those big stupid cow boxes. Oh, yes. uh, <laughs> this is where that stigma comes from, from the PC, uh, anti-PC community. But that, that, yeah, by that, I mean anti-PC gaming, where it's like, I get a PC, but I have to upgrade my, my card every year. It's like, that doesn't happen. That happened in the 90s. Like, you could probably upgrade your card every eight months and still be behind, at so least about- in that era. How about that uh, alien isolation for you there on your computer? Um, my computer has been running the same 3D card for four years, and it's still kicking ass, so we'll see. All we'll right. see about that. Fair enough. Um, but, yeah, so, like, they were having problems keeping up, and, you know, users were having problems keeping up. So they eventually switched from the Quake 2 to the Unreal Engine, and um, work continued, uh, and they threw out all of their old work. So, again, we're seeing the problem of they're not switching platforms, but they are switching engines. So... As forever continually <laughs> slipped release dates, it became the internet joke, basically. Yeah, like, yeah. Duke Nukem forever, more like it's taking forever. Yeah, I mean, Wired, like, Wired loved to give it their annual Vaporware Award. Eventually, they had to make it ineligible for their vapor, Vaporware Award. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, we're not even sure if it exists enough to make fun they of. They were just like, we're, we've, we've flagged or flogged this game enough, so yeah. we're done. Mm-hmm. So the game made another appearance with the Unreal Engine in 2001. So we have E3 98 and E3 2001, where the game made its two major showings. And again, it looked good. It looked great. I mean, for 2001 FPS, characters had faces. They had expressions. They could talk. They could uh, – this was post-Half-Life, of course. But still, they were they were working yeah, from, exactly. you know, I guess that sort of template where it's like we need people in our games now. They need dialogue, things like that. That's the thing is that Half-Life was so amazing. It's like now it's like, oh, crap. Well, we have to try right. to be more amazing instead now of, Instead of just going with their original plan, they were like, we have to do better than that. Yeah. So what happened next? Well, 3D Realms, there wasn't that much turmoil at 3D Realms because they were basically just burning through all of their own money. Um, 
making the game. They weren't. They did not have investors. They did not have a publisher. They were going to self-publish, I guess, or maybe use um, GT Interactive. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, I guess, they, I guess, gathering up developers who we talked about earlier, who who were the people who left Ikatana, I guess they were going to publish this game. And then they had financial difficulties. I believe one of their members died in a motorcycle accident or something like that. And Take Two, are they still around? Take Two? Yeah, yeah. they okay. do. You know, um, mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto. You've heard of it. Take Two is not Rockstar, or they, re- they rebrand own, they themselves. They own Rockstar. Oh, okay, got it. Weird. Okay, yeah. Also, Two K Games. Yeah. Okay, that's weird. I was thinking of Two K, but I wasn't sure if I was getting it um, con- confused. Yeah. But anyways, now that they have a publisher, the pressure is on, and the company's CEO at the time, Jeff Lappin, was giving them crap for not producing the game. So I think he was well within his rights to say, you know, we paid twelve million dollars for this game. We want you to finish it. So he brought this up during a conference call in 2003, and George Broussard uh, responded on a um, Shack News message board basically talking trash to um, the CEO of Take-Two. Like, hey, we'll do it when we're ready. You know what you're getting into. Um, You know, what was Victor Island's famous quote? Uh, Delays Delays are temporary. temporary. Mediocrity is forever. Yeah, essentially he said that. Um, And, you know, like, as far as we knew, development would continue. until 2007 when a, a teaser leaked out in December. Like, we just thought Duke Nukem Forever was dead. So this, there was this teaser of Duke Nukem pumping iron, and he's like, I want to park my break in an alien something. Or as he was talking about pooping in an alien's face, I guess. I forget what the, the exact quote is. Uh, uh, again, again, no release date. They just want you to know that, hey, for some reason, 10 years later, we still have money, and we're still <laughs> doing this, and we can still release things. So, yeah. sure. Um, now it looks modern again. Yeah, but. and in 2008, George Broussard was like, "We have internal targets, dates, and goals, like every developer, but, but we're, we're not, not going to talk them. about them." Exactly. Uh, the release date is still Trust when it's done. So here's what happened. Uh, eventually, 3D Realms needed more money, so they're like, "Hey, Take Two, can I have five million dollars?" And they're like, "Nope. How about we give you some up front, and then someone you finish the game?" And George Broussard is like, "That's it. I've been <laughs> developing this game for 11 years, and you've crossed the line." Yeah. So, <laughs> so essentially. Development was called off because of, I guess, I guess, you can call this a professional hissy fit if you want. I think it is. Um, and that caused a lawsuit, as we saw with um, with Two Human. A lawsuit did not help things. So Take-Two um, was like, you're not following through on what you said you would. We paid money for this game in the hopes that you would finish it within six years or so. But uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And, um, and the game was sort of canceled at that point because 3D Realms stopped working on it, even though they... they they insisted they were still working on it. I mean, they didn't want to lose this lawsuit, which I think was settled out of court. But then a bunch of footage came out about the game um, that looked like it had come along uh, pretty well. And uh, it looked like it was an okay shooter. I mean, we didn't really know that much about Duke Nukem Forever at this point, but mm-hmm. we were just happy to see that that it was still alive. Um, and we're almost at the end of the story, guys. So <laughs> Randy Pitchford came to the rescue of Duke Nukem Forever. We all know that guy, right? 2K Games, mm-hmm. uh, Borderlands man. He worked on Forever briefly. He worked on a, a version of Duke 3D with the expansion pack or something like that. Yes. And um, he essentially was like, I believe in Duke. Uh, they, they said always bet on Duke and that's what I'm going to do. And um, he did. He essentially got um, 2K to act as the publisher and buy the rights to the game. And it went from a PC release to an Xbox 360 and PS3 release. And this was all unveiled at PAX 2010. And uh, Pritchard, what... Did I say Pritchard? Is that his name? Pitchford, sorry. Man, it's getting hot in here, guys. Uh, Pitchford said, you know, somebody once said always bet on Duke, so I did. I put myself right in the middle there and put all the chips on it, and it worked out. Our strategy was to get it there, to get it to where we know it's there, we know it's happening, we have it to the polishing stage where we have it running on all the platforms, and we know it's ready to ship. 
Yeah. And at this point, the game just was finished and it came out. I mean, like, I guess yeah. it just needed extra time for all the time it spent. No, I think it needed to be away from George Broussard. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> was um, a flipping crazy, man. And we'll talk more about him in a second. But that's the end of the Duke Nukem story. I mean, like, development, there was no, like, internal yeah. struggles. There, I mean, there was one ego at the center of it, but it was not really clashing with people on the team. And after... After this game was canceled, um, the reason Randy Pitcher was able to rescue it was because people were continuing to develop it out of their homes. Like, the development team was like, we like this game. We're going to keep working on it. So they were working on it outside of the office after there was no chance of release. Like, they were devoted to this game. Mm -hmm. But it came out, and I think we had all grown up, and Duke Nukem hadn't, because I I feel like he did seem like he was trapped in in another time, and the game didn't really acknowledge this. The game was like, no, face value, badass. But... We had been used to like right. so much of like post post nine eleven super cynical irony that we need. If you're going to swallow that kind of a character, you need some sort of like self awareness to him because it's just like he's just a catchphrase chewing monster. The original games <laughs> did have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think a character like that could work, but you know, even if it didn't take itself seriously, but it would have to be done so well. Yeah. It would have to be just absolutely pitch perfect, spotless, and. Um, that wasn't that game. I know, like, at the time, I don't want to steal their jokes, but a giant bomb was saying that, like, they should have, like, they should show you, the, like, the patheticness of Duke Nukem. Mm. Like, after he says a catchphrase, he could be like, <laughs> I got to go pick up the kids from soccer practice or something like that. Like, he's still, like, a regular guy. Like, if they would juxtapose, like, just being a middle-aged, like, loser with him being an action hero or something like that, like, yeah. something that, like, the Venture Brothers would do, I feel, with a character well, like that. Was that what Matt Hazard became? Yeah. Matt Hazard... Uh, I, I want to say yes, but um, God, it wasn't executed very well. Mm, um, no, because you're parodying a parody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was very strange. But yeah, I mean, like, the saddest part about this story was that um, after all this time, Duke Nukem 3D, even if you divorce it from the kind of gross content that people rightfully complain about, and I agree with them, um, the game was just bland. It was not very interesting. It was just like, it felt like it belonged in 2006, which when I feel like the design document or whatever yeah. you want to call it was finalized. Um, right. I never played it. It was weird because I I had been working in this industry since 2007, but I came out to SF to work at 1UP. And my first E3 was my second week of work, and Duke Nukem 3D shows up. Mm-hmm. So it was like, do I, do I really work here? Is this like, is this a dream? Duke Nukem exists? I have a job in the gaming industry? Like, what's happening? But um, that's my experience, and I never played it. Uh, how about you guys? I did play through about half of it, and the combination of it being the game that it was, and then also just... Very, like, what had been kind of a juvenile crassness that you could kind of roll your eyes at became, like, as the game wore on, as people have spoken to at length, it just got so not juvenile anymore and just, like, seemingly yeah. distasteful right. and, and mean. Like, and mean, yeah, yeah. Just, like, outright, like, ah, I'm going to turn this off. It's yeah. also just, like, I, yeah. The combination of both of those things together was, like, I followed this for a good 10 years or whatever the final tally was, but I'm, I'm kind of done. I, th- I think 13 years in that echo chamber just yeah. isolated everyone who worked on it from kind of outside perspectives, and they really needed someone to come in and just say, I mean, I, I know they had people come in to finish the, the tech work on the game, but they really needed to have someone come in and say, maybe you should change <laughs> this script or this weird sexist level objective that's really horrible. Yeah, and, and I, I think... And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's not just, but that's Duke. Like, well, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. like, he can't... There, there's a line, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, I think, like, I, I can't think of any uh, direct references, but I, I I think the script had a lot of, like, super dated stuff in it, like, um, like Bush-era commentary <laughs> in it, because it was made, like, at the heart of, like, Bush-era America, right. and um, it just didn't fly anymore. Ray, did you did you try this at all? Yes. What'd you think? Um, I don't know what to add, <laughs> really. <laughs> I think Brett, Brett did nail it. Uh, it's, 
yeah, big disappointment because I was, uh, I guess, ready for it in a way because I did like yeah. Duke Nukem 3D a lot and I was waiting for it and it was nice to see it coming back and, you know, I was ready to give it a chance, but they kind of squandered the chance. <laughs> there were just so many like super serious like shooters. Like yeah. it, the time was right for someone to just step in and be like, we're going to make fun of shooters, of action heroes, of the right. storytelling that's going on now. <laughs> yeah. and it's like yeah. that's a, that's what I think was in our heads. I might not have had a big problem with it if it were actually funny, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All. I think like Painkiller and Serious Sam sort of rose to replace Duke as sort that of, yeah. sort of – Fast-paced, like, badass simulator, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. It's like if the Zucker brothers wrote FPS movie. Like, <laughs> yeah. Great. Starring yeah, Kelsey Grammer? Yeah. <laughs> Weird. So, yeah, that was our uh, Flops episode. Hope you enjoyed it. It's also our season premiere, so thanks for your money, and please keep giving it to us because we love you. Um, I was going to talk about other Flops. We don't have a lot of time, but I just have a few. Like, Lair was a big thing. Remember that? That mm-hmm. was, like, Factor, oh, Lair, yeah. Factor 5's death. They died for later. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like the the biggest problem with that wasn't even necessarily their fault. It was like Sony came in and said, oh, it's mm-hmm. a launch PS3 game. You guys better make it all about six axis. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, in that case, it was not, I mean, this is not a, a case of inflated egos or just no, crazy well, ideas. Yeah, in a way, the inflated ego was Ken Kutaragi. Yeah, like yeah. Last minute edition motion control. That jerk. And, and, so also Advent Rising, which was a planned trilogy, but it turns out no one wants a Mormon retelling of sci-fi nope, stuff. Not I guess. so much. What, uh, a, what about a Norse one? That uh, they still don't want that. Ooh, no. We got to keep what it what if they were religions. Mormon Norses, oh, Norsemen. Norsemen. I'd love some s'mores. Thank you. I think they might have <laughs> the four Norsemen. <laughs> Maybe they would have bought some watchtowers if they were around. Wait. Are those Jehovah's Witnesses? Jehovah's okay, Witness. I'm sorry. Man, I'm pissing off so many people probably right now. Radar Scope. I, I disagree with this. <laughs> Radar Scope. Okay, so that's I, Nintendo's uh, big arcade disaster in the early 80s. That was just one of many, many, many disastrous yeah. arcade games of, of the early 80s, late okay. 70s. I mean, uh, I don't think there was hubris involved in that. It was just misreading the market and yeah. having an irrelevant product. And What's different about that game versus so many other arcade flops of the early golden arcade true, age true. was that they managed to salvage it and turn Th- it, it into It doesn't stand out, but I think for it's like notable for Nintendo, maybe. Um, Bioshock Infinite? I, I, debatable. D- debatable. It did destroy an entire, um, entire developer, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, but that happens so often now. <laughs> true. I guess it does. I guess it does, but it's just like... What's I, so special I, about that? It did have like six years of development, and... I guess I, I never see it not on sale, so uh, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's always it's never not four ninety nine on Steam. Like you can always get it for five bucks. Yeah, uh, brutal legend, and I think Psychonauts too. Like before, um, Tim Schafer and his crew found a better way to sell their games and a better way to make their games. Their their mm-hmm. first games were huge like losses for them, um, and it was kind of scary for a while. Yeah, but I, I thought Flops was more about spiritual as opposed to financial. Uh, like, well, I, I, w- I would say those games were pretty successful creatively. Speaking, I would say yeah. Creatively. yeah. But I didn't and I don't about... think there was a lot of ego involved in them either. No, like, I don't. Tim I don't see nice Tim Schafer as you know that lumberjack hipster. I don't. I don't see him <laughs> as being a particularly uh, cocksure jackass. True, yeah, he's like he's the, very nice. He's the realest dude on earth, man. Yeah, like, he's, he's the cool uncle of games. <laughs> like we were somewhere in like SF somewhere, and we ended up like bumping into him, and it's like, yeah, hey, I'll give you a ride, and I'm like in his back seat, uh-huh. like uh, uh, let me move this car seat out of the way, and I'm just like, this is like the nicest man. And so, yeah, there's no, like, hubris. Yeah. To be fair, none of these really fit the the rubric I created because they're just, like, outliers. But they're still, right. like, I, um, you know, notable notable failures. 
in well, some sense. Right. Everything I, we've talked about has just been because of uh, Hindenburg-sized egos that <laughs> ended the same yeah. way. <laughs> and, uh, like, I, I forgot to mention, like, where's George Broussard? Like, where'd he go? <laughs> Is he... I looked under the table. We're safe. No, that's not him. That's oh, somebody no. else. <laughs> Whoa, jeez. Uh, that, that's actually Yu Suzuki. So, you know, I, <laughs> I like the game, but uh, what about Final Fantasy XIII? It fits so many of your... Oh, you're right. ...of your mm. categories. Um, like, the idea of creating something big. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was... It was uh, yeah, you know It what? was designed as, like, the first part of a, this massive trilogy mm. or s- overarching series that had... No real connection within the games. And immediately it was dialed back like, oh, wait, no, this is Type-0, no, this is something yes, else. Yeah. Like, it's but definitely like a hiccup that got caught. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like, And I love 13 also for all the all the criticism I get, but it's like I still enjoyed it. But it was promised the whole fabula, novala, no, whatever, crystallis yeah, thing. Yeah. Like it, it did seem Which like. had nothing to do with crystallis for NES. No, yeah. too bad. Yeah. That would have been better. The SEO for that's all messed up now. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that that's actually good. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeremy, because it, it does fit this this scope and like the egos at play and poor management. I don't even know if ego was necessarily a problem. It was more like a. I, I sense it was. Ego. It was much more at the the corporate level. I think they looked at Final Fantasy VII, which was a big hit, and then they started to do the expansions of Final Fantasy VII. You know, the the spinoffs and everything, and I think what they said was all right, why don't we build that into this game from the very beginning? Mm. And they were still kind of hedging their bets by not making Versus 13 and Agato 13 directly tied to Final Fantasy mm. 13, but still part of like this overarching worldview or whatever. So, so they were being cautious on two fronts, like taking a very conservative approach to uh, franchise building and at the same time, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's just weird. But like I've, having, having talked to the people behind that game quite a bit. Like, to me, I never saw them as being I don't like, think super it's... egotistical, just more like, oh, we've always done things this way, and this is how the, the Final Fantasy way is. Mm, okay. But that's more a Japanese mindset than, yeah. than I... necessarily ego. It's just like, this is the system that works. Let's keep doing it. I just sense an ego in terms of, like, you like lightning, right? Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. You've always liked lightning. Yeah. <laughs> She's she's girl cloud. Right? I don't know if it's even that so much as like Motomo Toriyama saying, "I like lightning." Yeah, it's like here's my wedding picture, guys. You can play through it now. He's he's a trouble man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Uh, we've had a lot of fun today, and we're all sweltering in our tiny studios. So you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, twi- and Twitch.tv as Retronauts, and you can find us at our new home at US Gamer. So come on on down and click on some stuff, and click on our ads, and just keep reloading the page over and over again because I'm sure that'll help us, right? Right? Some point. Yes. Okay. Also, SEO. I guess if we get some ads at some point, sure. Yeah. And uh, as always, please review us on the iTunes Music Store. They always help our ranking, and um, we want people to know about our show. We're always getting new listeners, and that's all because of you guys. So thanks so much for helping out on that end. And um, contact info. You can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo, and I also write for US Gamer and Something Awful regularly. So go to those sites, read my stuff, read everyone else's stuff. It's all good. Ray? I'm on Twitter, RTBAAA. And I like video games. Hey, Brett, where can we find you? Uh, Brelston on Twitter. I'm also uh, Capcom Unity. We're posting blogs. It's on Twitter, Facebook, and all that stuff as usual. Um, and let's see. All, all the associated brands. I mean, Resident Evil, Street Fighter, Mega Man, Monster Hunter, all have their own equivalents. Um, yeah. And uh, can you talk about podcasts? 
uh, podcast. Well, Unity, we started our, we started up our podcast again uh, for the Capcom Unity podcast, mm. uh, which is headed up by Greg Moore, um, and he does a really good job of uh, we pick one topic and kind of talk through it. And he he was in localization and uh, community and and all kinds of different places, uh, so he had a lot of insight on that. And we had a really good episode about localization, including having people on uh, David Chrislip, who's been at Capcom for like. Years and years. Oh, and years. I, I, I think you meant personal that. podcasts, Brett. Oh, well, too, I have those too. too. I have those too. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, so there's Laser Time Network, uh, which has Laser Time, the pop culture podcast, and then also uh, I do VG Empire, a game music podcast, um, where it's it's also biweekly or quad <laughs> fortnightly. Or however that Whenever it shows uh, up, I'm, I'm appreciative. Uh, yeah, we just most recently, as of this recording, uh, did a. Uh, I forget the name of the composer. It's uh, Masafumi, Masafumi Takada. Yeah, uh, Takada, yeah. who did uh, Danganronpa, who did um, No More Heroes, no, uh, God Hands, Killer7, just this great body of work in the last like 10 years. That was but, a great episode. Um, but then also, uh, just every other week, we did some some fun Famicom sound chip stuff, you know, an episode about Ninja Turtles games, and you know, all, th- all kinds of stuff. VGEmpire.com is where that usually sits. Um, and I think we'll be in Rocktober by the time this oh one man, comes out. Oh, man, annual Rocktober. Any details, or do you have not that, to figure that out yet? Uh, depending on when this posts, I mean, it'll be active. I don't know. Okay, sure. We'll, um, we'll let you figure it out. Go to yeah. VGEmpire.com. Pri- prior um, ones were Castle in 2012 and then 2013 was Final Fantasy and the bit there is like a, a brand or series that's too big for one episode so for one month it becomes a weekly show and we kind of like try to like tackle it I'm looking forward to it and Jeremy who are you where can we find uh, you you can find me on Tumblr oh no, <laughs> well Tumblr or Twitter yeah whatever. you can as GameSpite um, I am at usgamer.net and also have some various and sundry little side projects I'm most fond right now of anatomyofgames.com but gameboyworld.com is pretty fun too cool thank you so much Brett for joining us and thanks for everyone else for coming in also Ray I forgot you're a guest now so I have to thank you yeah <laughs> you're welcome god it burns not me not really up. a guest <laughs> what's that it's not really a guest I guess so no, he's a, he's no, a special uh, what, I deserve uh, the best special returning guest yeah okay. it's like yeah it's like you know a regular in the cast who still I'm, gets like the special credit at the end of the credits it's I'm, like in Cheers when Diane left and then starring. she would come back for the last episode or no, no 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 I'm Heather Lockley okay <laughs> whoa great okay alright that was weird let's we'll see you guys next week or t- no. in two weeks yeah. yeah that's right for a new episode of Retronauts thanks so much for supporting us and welcome to the new season later later